Hi, I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome my dear friend, Holly Osment. Holly and I have known each other for years and used to work together on a wonderful publication called Reality Check. Holly is a fellow licensed marriage and family therapist with her own private practice where she focuses on treating bipolar disorder as well as sexuality. Holly is a certified sex therapist and also a professor at Santa Clara University where she teaches sexuality. Holly is very passionate about talking about women's sexuality and addressing some of the more taboo topics, which sex is really still all taboo, way too much so. But Holly brings to light some of the things that we don't always know so much about, like women's sexual pleasure, women's genitalia, and women's orgasms, and all of these things that we don't always make the space to speak about and a lot of us are left in the dark around it and left to not always enjoy sex and not always understand sex or our bodies. In this episode, we talk about women's cycles and how we can understand them better to either enable or prevent pregnancy, how we can get more in touch with our bodies and what the heck does sex really even mean? So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hi, Holly. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Hello. Glad to be here. So excited to have you on the show and to see you. It's been so long since I've seen you and connected with you. It has. It has. I wish we were connecting in person, but hopefully that can happen soon as well. Since I know healing, progressing, that's all good things. Right, right, right. So Holly, I think, I think the last time we saw each other was, I mean, it's got to be years ago now, but Holly, you and I worked together at, at for a publication at Los Gatos High School, which is mm-hmm. my alumni. That's where I spent my years in high school. And while I was there, there was an amazing, fabulous, incredible woman named Nancy Offer who started a publication called Reality Check. And I will forever and always hold that near and dear to my heart, as well as, of course, Nancy, who has passed a few years back. So I hold her memory in my heart always. So Reality Check was the first thing that really called to me. So, you know, we're both therapists. You are a LMFT, as am I. And when I first was introduced to Reality Check, so for the listeners, Reality Check was a publication at, at our high school, which if you don't know Los Gatos, Los Gatos is a fairly affluent town in Northern California. And at the high school, it can seem like everyone's life is pretty perfect on the surface, which I think is the case with a lot of schools. And it's, you know, for that, when you're younger and even into later life, people try to project this image that their life is perfect and clean. And we know that now, especially with social media, right? That people present one way and we don't actually know what's going on. And that's the big piece that I, I love. We don't actually know what's going on. And I, came across this publication my freshman year of high school called Reality Check, which Nancy created with a few seniors, I believe it was like 1999 or maybe a few years before that. And it was all about allowing students to speak openly and honestly 
about topics that were not usually addressed or spoken about. Things like Mm -hmm. abortions and sex and partying and drinking and drugs, depression, all of these things that might be going on for a teenager, but that they don't always know who to talk to about it or how to talk about it. So she started this and allowed students to submit stories anonymously about these topics. And I'll never forget the first time I read a reality check and I just felt so connected with it. I thought this, this is what I want to be a part of is letting the truth come through. Cause that's really what reality check was about was allowing people to safely share their truth. Giving everyone a reality check about what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so by them sharing their truth, people actually got to read this and say, oh my gosh, this is what kids are going through. And it was like, yeah, this is what kids go through. And and letting the parents know too. Yeah. Yeah. Their parents hear it. Other students hear it. It Mm -hmm. becomes, you know, they have to face it and realize everything isn't always what it seems. And that's what I loved about Nancy was she actually taught me sex ed in sixth grade. She came to my little mountain school lakeside in sixth grade and taught a sex ed program. And she would say from the beginning, she said, you know, parents and people don't always realize the reality of of what kids are going through and what they're experiencing. And it's important for kids to be able to ask questions and to be heard. And that's what I loved about Nancy. She really listened. Didn't matter if I was 14 year old, 14 years old, or, you know, 28 years old, she would Mm -hmm. still listen to me. She always heard me out. She listened to everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that mm-hmm. both of us treasured her and miss her very much. She was such an inspiration. And, and I love that her work still carries on. They still have reality check. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we're no longer a part of that, but it still carries on because you were, you took over Nancy's role. You were that role for a while, right, Holly? Yeah, I spent about uh, eight or nine years writing because they would always have the student submissions and then they would have a therapist write something in the back that sort of gave some guidance and some helpful resources. And I was I wrote that for eight or nine years and then started transitioning, taking over as the advisor as Nancy was beginning to retire. But then um, ultimately the high school decided to keep it. I wasn't an employee of the high school. And so ultimately they decided just to keep it within their staff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was a little sad because I was also writing. I eventually, once I got licensed, it was such an honor. I got to become a, go from being a uh, reality check staff member to being a professional writer. for I at least got to do it for a few years. Yeah. Full circle. And that was such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I'm just glad I got to have that. And you were such a, a wonderful part of keeping reality check going. So, and you did amazing work. I remember you would work so hard for that. So Yeah, those were wonderful times we got to share together. And I just Mm -hmm. think it's, I was so looking forward to having you on the show and was hoping you would, you would, because again, Reality Check was really my, such a stepping stone to lead me to the work that I do now and that I hope to do in the future, which is truly giving a voice to people about what they're actually experiencing and allowing people to see what's really going on, that Reality Check. And because I think the whole world could use a Reality Check in so many ways. Of course. Yes. I am with you. So Holly, now you, well, you've had your own private practice for many years, even way before Reality Check. You've been licensed for how long? I got licensed in uh, 2006. Okay. So about 15 years or whatever the math is, <laughs> I think over 15 years. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, I know that you specialize in bipolar disorder. 
I know that's one of a focus. Has that always been your focus? No, that just arose uh, organically over time. It, I, I wouldn't have even predicted that I was going to specialize in that, but I had a few incidences, both um, personally and then professionally working with people about bipolar that uh, just I was surprised by and I realized that I didn't know as much and, and there's so much more. The explosion of our understanding of it has really increased even since I was in graduate school. So I just became fascinated and, and educated myself and took it upon myself to get up to speed. And it's, it's fascinating work. There's not a lot of just regular therapists that work with bipolar. It's often seen as something just for a psychiatric medication thing, but there's a lot of therapy that can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so needed. So, so grateful to you for doing that work. It's, it's challenging and it's a hard thing to experience for those diagnosed. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult diagnosis. I think that even just hearing that news, uh, I think, well, I think unfortunately a lot of diagnosis can be kind of pretty jarring for people to hear Mm -hmm. and to accept. And sometimes I get frustrated even with diagnoses because it can feel like such a label and I don't think it always needs to be. Yeah. 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 Therapy is is definitely an amazing tool for those who are navigating that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wonderful work that you do. And then you also, you're also a teacher, you're a professor and yes. you teach about sexuality and you yes. are a, you, is it recently you're a certified sex therapist? Is that? Certified sex therapist. Yes. And I teach at Santa Clara university, the local um, sort of local Jesuit university nearby here in, um, it's in Santa Clara. I'm in Los Gatos. And um, so I teach to the graduate students who are becoming therapists. So I teach a sexuality class that's required if you're going to get your master's degree. And then I also am launching a new elective class, which is introduction to sex therapy. So fun stuff. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic Mm -hmm. topic. And I mean, talk about a reality check and, you know, being able to kind of bring forth some truth and some honesty. I think that Mm -hmm. sex amazingly, shockingly, all these centuries later is still a pretty hush-hush and taboo topic. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like, it, even when people think, you know, so often in the in the courses, uh, the graduate students will say, well, I, I, I thought that I already knew pretty much everything. But after your class, I realized how much either I didn't know or what I thought I knew was actually not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so valuable for people to understand that, you know, under, cause there's, I mean, you know, sex is complicated. It's vast. There's, it's a very, you know, multifaceted. There's so many components to it. It's not just, I mean, we think about it just like, bam, like it's just that, you know, intercourse, make a baby, simple as that, but it's much more evolved and just has a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially now, it's so valuable for people to actually, to understand, I mean, first of all, like how sex and reproduction works, especially, you know, with everything that happened last week in the Supreme Court, the overturn. Yeah. It's so important for people to have 
as much education as possible about getting pregnant. How do we, if we don't want a pregnancy, what can we do aside from, I mean, obviously there's, we're told about contraceptions, different types, but there's also, you can be more aligned with your own cycle, your own body and understanding when are the times that we're actually, because getting pregnant and all of that is, it's not, I mean, it's pretty magical, but it's not just, it can't happen anytime. It, it's well, you know, we're, your we're body. That it could happen at yes. any time. Yes, yes. we're told like, don't go near. We're like, don't go near penis at all. If you don't want to get pregnant, you never know it could happen. But the reality is like, yeah, there's this small window and we want to yeah. be cautious and mindful. Right. But the more that we know that knowledge is very powerful, especially now for women, because if we are truly going to have our rights taken away in this, in this manner, even contraception might be. Yeah. Limited. Yeah. Yeah. So, so understanding about there's a, there's a great book that's been out for, for just years and years and years called taking charge of your fertility. Mm-hmm. And you can use it either to try to get know pregnant. about that window to get pregnant mm-hmm. or know about that window to not get pregnant. Yes. Yeah. And there's a time and a season in most people's life for both. And it's yeah. very interesting when you hit that age, you know, I'm in my mid thirties now. And, and when you hit that, where everyone tries not, not, not to get pregnant. And all of a sudden everyone's trying to get pregnant. (laughs) It's such a funny shift. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're like, why did I worry about it all this time when it's actually very challenging sometimes to make it happen? You never know. You never know. Yeah. So I think it's so wonderful that someone as, cause you know, Holly, what I love about you is you're very direct and honest and outspoken. And I always appreciated that in our reality check meetings is that you know, when people were, cause it's, it was an interesting group dynamic. We're talking about a sensitive subject and, you know, sometimes there were certain things that needed to be said or, you know, clarified and you would come out and just say it. And I would just watch you and be like, wow, that's, I hope I can be like that someday more assertive and, and stand up for what I believe. Cause it can be hard in groups. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I tend to, uh, I want people to like me. I want people to, you know, I want to be accepted. And so that can, but I also feel really passionately and strongly about certain things. And it's, you know, but I always, you just seem to, you would, you would say it like it is. And I love that. So, and so that's why I think it's so amazing that you do what you do, because that's the voice that we need when it comes to sex, not like, yeah. well, let me look at the book for the answer. Like you actually talk to people and right. And not use um, euphemisms and, you know, yeah. different sort of words to not say exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. So can you share a little more about sort of what, when you, became a, a sex a sex therapist and a sex educator, what were some of the main points that in topics that you were most passionate about or that you wanted to convey or help people understand about sex? Um, I'll try not to give a long-winded answer. There's so many things that, that caught my interest. One is just the uh, trying to help people understand the benefits, the wide-ranging benefits of comprehensive sex education for youth. Um, a lot of times people see it as um, threatening or dangerous or corrupting or at, le- at the least maybe not necessary. But in fact, research shows students feel uh, they're li- more likely to delay sexual activity. They're more likely to use contraception. They're more likely to have it be a consensual experience. They're more likely to feel connected with their parents if their parents talk to them. So there's a lot of benefits. Um, I also think that one thing we really don't talk about is sexual pleasure. And so a lot of people, and I would say uh, this falls a lot more heavily on women, sort of as a general whole, that they don't really know about their own pleasure. They're not educated about it, and it's not prioritized. 
And so, so many women prioritize being a good partner, being found sexy, being found desirable, their partner's pleasure rather than their own, or even knowing how to access that. So those are two things that I'm pretty passionate about. Okay. So then about the sexual pleasure part, when it comes to women, how do you present that? How do you talk about that with a, you know, class full of college students when you're, you know, you're wanting to kind of get them, you know, because I know that a lot of women for a long time won't, not, not, not everybody, obviously, but a lot just won't even go there. Uh, uh, maybe they don't even think about, you know, I know a lot of people who didn't have an orgasm, women who didn't have orgasms until like much later in life and just didn't really think that that was possible. And, you know, it obviously it's a spectrum and some people are super comfortable with their sexuality and others just don't really want to ask questions or explore it. They're very uncomfortable with it, depending on their upbringing and other factors. So mm-hmm. what do you bring when I imagine in a college classroom, you have a whole, you know, breadth of different people from different backgrounds. How do you introduce that and get the class engaged? You know, you start the very basics. So you start with the fact of terminology, which may not seem relevant, um, but it is pervasively uh, a misunderstanding that a woman's genitals are called a vagina, which is not accurate, right? The, the women's genitals are a vulva and the vagina is just the tunnel where like a baby comes out or maybe something goes in or blood comes out, you know? So that's just the tunnel and it's for reproduction. Um, but the whole thing is the vulva. And so we start with that, that, uh, you know, people of all ages and genders don't even realize that that's true. And then we educate about, and part of the vulva that's crucial is the clitoris, right? And a lot of people have heard of the clitoris, but they just don't realize its importance. And so talking about how when babies are formed in utero from the same tissue, we have arms, we have legs, we have noses, all those things, we start with the same genital bud tissue. And the same tissue that becomes a penis becomes a clitoris. And if you just can understand that, then you begin to understand that if you ignore the clitoris in a sexual encounter, it's like ignoring the penis. But so many people think that it's a penis and vagina we're supposed to pay attention to with heterosexual intercourse. Um, I mean, but that's not where the pleasure is. The pleasure is in the clitoris. So just educating, first of all, about that and all those kinds of things and talking. I mean, there's so many sex negative messages, so many shaming messages about women's bodies, um, shaming them that somehow they smell as if men's bodies don't, um, you know, that you're supposed to remove hair because it's gross, but not if you're a man, even though the hair is supposed to protect you. I mean, there's just so many messages heaped up that women are so preoccupied by all this that they're not focusing in on their pleasure. They're focusing on how do I look? What does my partner think? How long am I taking? Things like that, which are going to prevent pleasure. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, also I think just like in so many other ways that women are sort of expected to uphold a certain appearance and and get caught up in that, like being a certain weight and looking a certain way and all of that. The same thing goes with our, vulvas (laughs) or if we're not gonna okay so the vulva is the front the whole thing the front the whole thing the vagina is just a part the vulva usually the vulva is everything you can see like the vagina you can't see it unless you know you're in a certain position (laughs) so right right in there but so when we're talking about the vulva also women are super self-conscious a lot of the times about that because 
they come in all different shapes and sizes. And I know so many women who have literally no idea really what a vagina looks is supposed to look like because we're not, you know, as open about it. We're not, some people are kind of honestly afraid of their vagina. It's, you know, it, it can feel like yeah. strange and, you know, weird and just hard, you know, they don't want to go there. So, I mean, they don't even want to look at it, let alone see how they can derive pleasure from it. Right. Like I, female masturbation, I would imagine is, significantly lower than male masturbation. Do you know the st statistics on that? Um, it, it is lower once people understand what masturbation is. So once you are going through puberty and masturbation is sort of goal-focused based on arousal in, in a certain way that you understand is sexual, it's way lower for women because women are usually taught not to touch. Whereas for boys, not only do they not get the messages as much, although they do, uh, but it's just right out there and it's going to get your attention if it's aroused. And so it's easier to touch. But when you look at prepubertal children and babies, they touch equally because people really have a hard time wanting to talk about the babies and prepubertal children touch their genitals, but they do. Yeah. And it's normal. And, and it's at the same rates. So then technically is the term masturbation to indicate touching yourself to derive pleasure? touching your genitals to derive pleasure. Is that masturbation or is any form of genital touching? I mean, any, any form. Technically, masturbation just means that it feels good and you're touching your genitals. I have found personally that when I'm talking with people, they get so uncomfortable. If you're talking about a little baby or a, a little kid, that I just talk about touching genitals and masturbation. You could think of that as more after puberty, more focused. But I mean, it's the same word. It's just people really have a hard time. So if that's going to be distracting, I don't need to use that word. Yeah. yeah. So, but I think the, the bigger point is that, as you said, I think men begin to explore themselves sooner because it's right there and they're not, it's hard to ignore. And they're, you know, it's very sensitive and <laughs> can it right. reacts to things and all of that. They get erections and they're going to notice it. Women, they're like, well, I don't get an erection. I don't, it's just there. It's just what I, I think I'm supposed to use this when I eventually have sex and when I give a, have birth. I mean, they do actually get one because the clitoris gets erect. It's the same tissue. It's just, you can't, it's yes. not protruding really wildly outside of your body. So you can't really tell. But yeah, the clitoris does swell and erect. Okay. Yeah. And so that brings me back to kind of the point of like women being self-conscious about how it looks because different people's clitoris and vulva and all those things, have, they look and come in different shapes and sizes, right? Yeah. Like they can look they all kinds of ways. And no matter what way it looks, it's fantastic, right? It's still beautiful and perfect and operative because I, I know women are like, oh my gosh, I, I can't let anybody see this because it's, I don't know if this is right. Yeah. I don't know if this is weird because, you know, it's, it's very interesting looking. It can have, again, like different shapes and lengths and sizes and it can create Absolutely. consciousness. Absolutely. And, and so can ears, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't hold them to the same standard. We tend to hold sex and genitals to a very different standard than any other body part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I bring this up because it also points that women don't often explore or connect with that, right? Like we said, like guys will often get very familiar with their penises, but women will often be like, I don't know if I want to do that. Like I, most of my friends, when I've brought up like masturbating and my frequency and all of that, and like kind of just exploring and getting in touch with that, they're like, Oh, like, Oh, she's, she's going there. She's talking about that. So it's just it's also it's confusing. 
Yeah, it's also confusing because women don't all sometimes don't know what to do for masturbation because again, mm. there's this idea that the the pleasure source is supposed to be the vagina. So yeah. are we supposed to stick something in there like a dildo or something? And then I was doing nothing for me. I don't know what the big deal is. Yeah. Are you touching your clitoris? Remember, clitoris, penis, equal, right? Yeah. So the vast majority of women who masturbate don't penetrate themselves because they're, they're using, they're, they're focusing on the clitoris. Yeah. So then let's talk about that. Then like misconceptions about orgasms for, for women and what causes them. So, you know, the, is, are all orgasms from the clitoris derived from it? Yes, essentially. Yes. It doesn't, that's not always obvious. The clitoris is, if if you think about a penis, like if you picture a penis in your mind and if you were to split the shaft in half and kind of go like a wishbone, ouch, I know, <laughs> no offense to penises, but that's what the clitoris looks like, right? So the clitoris, the head of the clitoris and the head of the penis are the same. And then there's a shaft of the clitoris, just like there's a shaft of the penis, but it's split in two into like a little wishbone and it goes around the, the vaginal tube. Okay. And then there are these other, these bulbs also. So there's all this sensitive tissue. So depending on how that was formed in utero, it could be that something is going in a vagina and you're touching the top part of the clitoris. I don't know if this, my hands are making any sense. <laughs> so if you're touching the, the wall of the little split part of the clitoris, you might be getting an orgasm vaginally, but it's, actually the clitoris, just like the G spot. It's just the top of the clitoris. It's all the clitoris. Okay. So that's what I was getting to is because you had mentioned that when we we had talked for is that it's all the the clitoris, whether it's like, you're like, Oh, it's from penetration. It's the G spot or, Oh, like, cause even like anal penetration can give a certain sensation. It can actually like stimulate the clitoris in some way, or at least provide pressure. Something happens good when all those things are- If you're getting an orgasm, it would be from the clitoris. If you're a male, it would be from the prostate. If it's anal, yeah, all of that, rather than what's wrong with me that, but you know, most people's uh, clitoris forms where you can't touch it. So most women can't orgasm just from penetration. Most- yeah. But since that's so widely known, unknown, they're like, what's wrong with me? And their partner might be like, what's wrong with you? Instead yeah. of it's the rare, rare woman who actually can access that. And it's her physio. There's nothing she can do. It wasn't, you know, nobody gets to choose how that gets formed. Yeah. Wait, but okay. So some people you can't see their clitoris. No, you can't access. Like if you're in, if something's going into the vagina, it's like the clitoris is formed too far above the wall to where it's not going to hit up against the roof and some it's formed like here. And so you can hit it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why often you have to bring some other tools in when people are, they touch the part of the clitoris you can see. That's a sure thing. That's the head. That's always the most sensitive part for a lot of women. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, you, that's a good thing to stimulate when you're having intercourse, when you're having penetrative sex, because as you said, most people, they're like, okay, I'm having sex and I'm not like, why am I not? Even though some women will, will orgasm just from penetration, it can happen. But to your point, it's probably because they're at an angle or they have a certain, you know, they're formed a certain way that they are getting clitoral stimulation. Right. Exactly. Even if they don't realize it, it feels like it's, they don't know that it's the clitoris that's getting stimulated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh. Okay. Um, so 
So let's say that, you know, there's some people who started masturbating early women and are, you know, they've got a vibrator and are really into it. And other women that are a little bit more concerned or like, you know, don't really feel very in touch with that, not very connected with it. Would you say that there are some women who have higher sex drives than others? Or what are your thoughts about like the, the female sex drive? Um, yes, I think, you know, so I think you and I talked once before. There's you don't like that word. That's why I'm asking. Cause I know you don't like that word. So I want to, well, say- there's some controversy in the field, uh, that, that it's, it's, it's not a sex drive. It's not a drive, but that's a bit of a misnomer, right? Just like saying something, you know, someone has a chemical imbalance, right? It's just not exactly accurate about what's happening, but yes, it does appear that people have varying uh, rates of desire for sex, right? Whether that's just inherent to them, like I just feel like I want sex more than most people or less than most people or whatever, but also within a relationship, right? In the very beginning of a relationship, when we're flooded with all the, this cocktail of hormones, our, our, our desire for sex can be way up and then can level out. And then some people, you know, if you look at sexuality on a spectrum, somebody may be more on the asexual spectrum that has really no desire really, or very little uh, desire for sex just all the time, no matter what. And so it's, it's a wide variety. Okay. So now you, you teach sexuality but you all, so now that you're, you're a certified sex therapist, do you work individually with clients? And if you do, what are some of the things that you see? Is it stuff that we've already talked about? Or what are some common themes that you see from women about wanting to explore about their sexuality? Yeah. So focusing on women, I do, I do see people individually and couples, right. About sexual concerns. So, you know, the most common, uh, the most common thing is low desire. Right. That's the most common female sexual complaint. I have low desire. And whether that's, you know, how they're measuring that, is that low compared to somebody they're with? Um, and that's just a relative statement, or is it low all the time, or did it used to be higher and now it's lower? So there's various things to look at there. So low desire for sure. And there's a lot of different things to explore about that. Um, a lot of them are about focusing on what's pleasurable. If you have low desire for really mediocre sex that you don't feel much pleasure from, maybe that's a pretty understandable uh, situation, right? So it's looking at that. It's also looking at some of the sexual pain is much more common in women than it is for men. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes women, as you mentioned, have a hard time um, orgasming. They've never orgasmed or they don't understand how. So that is something that can come in. Um, and then just concerns about um, the maybe beyond our conversation today, I don't know, but just about um, sexual fluidity, gender might be there into some kinks or, you know, various things like that, that also, you know, are topics we could explore in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So bringing back that a little, there, you hit on another topic that I think is really important, especially when it comes to women and, and sex is um, pain is painful pain or discomfort during sex. Because as you said, it it is much more common with women and bringing it back to pleasure, men are almost guaranteed an orgasm every time, unless, you know, there's some sort of, you know, erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction, but men will usually have an orgasm. Whereas for women, not only do they, may they not have one unless they have to kind of, you know, play around and explore, right? But they also might have discomfort 
there can be pain. Yeah. You know, it depends yeah. with each partner, how they fit, how they hit you, you know, I mean, <laughs> like hit your different spots inside there. Like it's, you know, and also it, it's, it's like its own little microclimate down there. Like your, your balance, your pH balance can get thrown off with a new partner. We can, women have the delight yeah. of having all kinds of things with a new partner. You can get a yeast infection. You can get a UTI. You can worry about STDs. You can worry about pregnancy. I mean, it's a lot for us to, whereas like yes. men just kind of like drive in there and, and then head out. And that's, then they usually have a pretty good time. <laughs> so and there's all, they have their own things that they deal with too. But yes, I, I, I hear your point there. It's true. It is much more complicated, especially with pain, because it's more common than people realize. And a lot of women uh, don't ever say anything Yeah. because they aren't sure why they're having it. And they think there's something wrong with them. They don't feel comfortable talking about this topic and they just uh, put up with it. Yeah. Or they avoid sex, but don't say why. And they just don't know how to approach this. Yeah. And I think what's so important about that, well, of course, one is that like, we need to learn to voice every, every person, every human to voice their actual experience. You know, again, bringing it back to like reality check is being able to speak like, Hey, this is what's actually going on for me. And I think that, it, you know, I've seen it can cause a lot of di divisiveness between couples. If, you know, if one person is kind of just trying to ignore and just be like, oh, this is fine. It doesn't matter that I don't really enjoy sex. I have pain during sex. That's right. going to create a barrier because, you know, really beautiful, enjoyable sex is wonderful and can really bring people together. And it's something that's a lot of fun, you know? And I've worked with so many couples where they're just like, I don't, we don't even want to, it just seems like a lot of trouble. And sometimes I don't like it. And she has a lot right. of hard time climaxing. And you know, they're not like tapping into what could be a really amazing experience because it, it does take work. And there's a lot of, you know, things to address that aren't always addressed. Yeah, that's right. And I think that um, another thing about sexual pain that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about basic vocabulary. Yeah. Um, where is the pain? And if you don't know how to label everything in your vulva, that becomes important. It really is important to know is the pain deep in your vagina where it might be, I don't know, might be endometriosis. Yeah, I was going to ask be a about very that. different kind of intervention to help that than if it was right at the entrance of the vagina, which is called the vestibule. If it's right at the entrance there, that's a different, which is very common, vestibulodynia, mm -hmm. uh, which is a different treatment and a different approach. Or is it is it outside on the labia? Like where? But if people are like, I don't know, it's like just down there. Um, addressing it and treating it becomes difficult. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak a little bit about endometriosis? Because I know I've had quite a few friends who found out they had that and it can be confusing when you first are experiencing it to wonder like, what is this? Like, is sex just like, not for me? Is it, you know, and, and even if it's not endometriosis, like how do we deal with pain during sex? How can we address it? How can we explore what the cause is? So I will keep my answer brief. You know, there's, there's things that you can explore um, about how sex is going sort of on my level as a therapist, talking about pain, talking about lubrication, talking about positions, talking about, you know, um, adequate sleep and nutrition and things like that. But then there's things that a doctor might get involved to look at any kind of, of nerve inflammation or these kinds of things. But then 
there is the godsend of the pelvic floor physical therapist. So a pelvic floor physical therapist is a great referral. Anybody with endometriosis, absolute referral to a pelvic floor physical therapist, right? So a lot of sexual pain. I would definitely be hoping that they would connect with that. Uh, and there's ways to that they can manipulate the body and look for tension and help the person and massage and all kinds of things that are a part of that field that address uh, sexual pain better than anything a therapist or a doctor can do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Cause I do think that it's, um, it is pretty common, you yeah. know, and to, to have some pain and discomfort, but it, it all starts with at least voicing it, you know, even if it's not something like a condition, if it's just, again, with certain partners, like the fit might just be like, oh gosh, like this is like, just always feels a little bit uncomfortable and not, but there are things you can do, but it's about right. you know, communication. Yes. And I think a lot of women get the message that sex is supposed to hurt or supposed to be uncomfortable, Yeah, um, which is really unfortunate. It's not supposed to hurt. Yes. I think that's a good thing to point out. It can, like you can like, I mean, if you're switching it up and doing different positions, you can be like, whoa, this one's a little bit uncomfortable. But if you can't find anything that feels good, then there's something, you know, something to explore, not just right off. Like, well, again, like, I guess it's just not for me. I guess this is how it is. Um, right, and I think that one thing that that could be a piece of that, depending on what's happening and what the issue is, is not equating sex only with penetrative intercourse, right? Yes. So that if if penetrative intercourse for whatever reason is painful, there's so many other things you can do that are sex that are pleasurable for all the bodies involved in the situation. Um, but a lot of people think, well, it has to be intercourse and we have to figure this out. Whereas, well, it, or it could just not be intercourse. You can have all kinds of orgasmic amazement and not have any intercourse. Um, but people tend to think of that as less than they use the horrible term foreplay, right? You know, these kinds of things, because that we have this sort of primacy of intercourse as sort of what we're all supposed to be having and is supposed to be the best. And that's just not true. And a lot of bodies can't even have penetrative intercourse, but can have all kinds of other things. Yes. Yeah. So then I'm going to ask what sounds like a really silly question, but what is sex? Yeah. You know what? I wish I could rattle off some brilliant definition right now, but I think the more interesting answer is, is actually a conversation, right? Rather than, well, let me just tell you what it is. It's this having people go through the process of answering what is sex and exploring things is a process of hopefully maybe expansion and acceptance that oral sex is sex, manual sex is sex, mutual masturbation is sex. Could kissing be sex? Is it? Let's talk about it. Is touching the body sensually sex? Let's talk about it because especially like as we age and maybe we go through illnesses or disability or pain or, you know, stamina concerns, what we consider sex and pleasure, the broader we can get, the better off we are. If we hold ourselves to this one act, our lives are very limited. Yeah. One description that I love is sex is synergistic, synergistic, energetic exchange synergistic that's not the right word synergistic 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 energy exchange 
So that, okay. that literally yeah. means that it's any form of exchanging energy with someone, right? It's just that when we're actually, you know, on top of someone and inside of them, whatever, that's like a pretty intense exchange. But just to your point, if you're lying with someone and you're feeling this, like, you know, this draw, this passion, yeah. this, you know, arousal, right. is that not sex? It, it, right. it sounds like it to me. If you're making out with someone and you just feel like your whole body is coming alive and awake and you're like, what is this? If you're getting aroused and, you know, women get wet when they get aroused, all of that is a part of sex. It, to your point, it's not just, you know, when there's penetration, because then also to be fair, then what, what are we talking about when we say other genders have sex? You know, that's, so you can't, it's definitely not limited to penetration. And even, like you said, even some of the best parts you can have without any penetration, you know, penetration right. can be fantastic. However, so can everything else like oral sex, you know, like just different using your tongues and hands and things in all different parts. You know, they, right. I've heard of um, people who were paralyzed can have an orgasm from like their elbow or their shoulder because it's ultimately it's an, you know, it's a, a nerve ex- stimulation, right? Sometimes right at the line where they lose sensation, if they're paralyzed, that can be very eroticized. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think it's cool the more that we broaden the term and the more that we embrace that like sex, it really is, you know, it's a whole broad exchange of two people wow. exchanging their energy with one another and whatever. And their form. erotic energy, right? And there's eroticism can be quite broad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's not just, you know, because I... I, you know, I know that you focus a lot on messaging, Holly, and I think the problem is words like that, like erotic or kink or all these things, we associate a lot with stuff like porn that has really kind of, I hate to, I don't want to use the word perverted, but I'm going to use it because it makes us think that it's bad or kind of like, you know, too salacious, like, oh gosh, like, let's not go there. But like, that's a part of it. Sex is erotic and it is does involve fetishes and it's okay to have fetishes and kinks and things that like get you off and get you going as long as it's in a safe place, consensual space. That This is what we're here for. A part of the glory of life is to explore and experience our bodies and the sensations that come along with it. And well, I, think- I, think that's, I think that's right. And I think that sometimes what you find, sometimes not certainly not all the time, but occasionally what you have when somebody has low desire or there's a con- sexual conflict in a couple or something like that, occasionally what you'll find is one partner really wants something more kinky. And so the, the, the more sort of standard, I guess, for lack of a name, sometimes we use the word vanilla, sort of the standard sex that they may be having, they don't really want that, but they won't say they have a huge desire for this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so it, it yeah. yeah. In fact, there was just some research that came out recently that was talking about uh, sort of the younger generation and saying that they're having less, uh, less sex today than they were in my generation, generation X. They're having fewer partners, but the sex they're having is kinkier. Interesting. What yeah. do you attribute that to? What do you think that's about? Uh, <laughs> to some degree, I attribute that to TikTok. Um, or social media in general, I think there's just such an explosion of awareness of sexuality, gender, identity, all these things that, so that the sort of the generation Z is way more knowledgeable from social media. Now you mentioned porn and porn is not inherently bad. I think it's very easy to demonize porn itself. Yeah. Um, 
there's a lot of problematic messages in porn, but they don't try, they're, they're not pretending to be sex educators, right? So really the, the problem is that we won't talk about the porn. If we yeah. educate everybody and say, oh, you know what? The guy's got this erection for so long because he stuck a needle in his penis and he has <laughs> chemicals in his penis. That's why it's staying erect so long. Yeah. They found somebody who has a really big penis to begin with anyway. So these are normal or the women have, you know, have had vaginoplasty or they're, they're you know, they don't have, you know, inner labia that are protruding just because they didn't use those. It doesn't mean that if you have labia that protrudes, there's something wrong with you or there's no consent or it's all penetrative or anyway. But if we all just talked about that and said, I know this is unrealistic, that would go a long way. But instead, we won't talk about it. We'll just demonize it and demonize it and demonize it rather than just educate people. Yeah, no, we need to absolutely start talking about it more and educate more because porn's not going anywhere. You know, I can I can see it shit, right because right now I think that the issue, the concern I have is that there is a, a huge um rate of porn addiction, you know, that really can impact people's lives and break up marriages. And a lot of that can happen because just what we've already been talking about is when people don't talk about what they really want, they'll turn to porn as sort of an outlet to get those things that they might not be comfortable asking their partner for experiencing with their partner or even with themselves. And that can breed this addiction that can become like any addiction unhealthy to the point where it starts impacting your life. Yeah, I, I I know what you're saying. And I, I do think that what you are describing relationally does absolutely happen because you talked about messaging. Um, you know, the research that I look at does not support um, that it's an addiction. So, and I know that like, for instance, the ASEC, the body that certifies sex therapists in this country absolutely does not use that language. And so uh, I really don't use the term sex addiction and porn addiction because I think that that's the wrong word. But yes, I think people uh, definitely use it to cope, definitely might use it to hide, definitely might use it to regulate themselves in ways that are very painful and harmful. And that needs to be addressed and treated. It's just the word addiction. But hmm. You don't think addiction can apply to almost anything? No. Oh, Okay. Then we might have different because that's I personally think that almost anything can be addiction because to me, addiction is anything that we engage in compulsively that can begin to have negative repercussions, but we continue anyways. And then it starts to kind of bleed into and affect our lives. So and something that we're using to sort of soothe or avoid something. And to me, that's I see that a lot with people with porn addiction is they're getting this a kind of a fix, a high from it that makes them kind of feel a certain way. And then they need that fix again and again. So that's what I see. I'm not, and I think it's beautiful that we have different views. I think that's so important for people to have various, you know, even being in the same field as therapists, we all get to still have our own views, but yeah, but I I just bring it up because I do, I wish that porn was, it wasn't like sort of this dark castle of a thing where it's like, Oh, don't go in there. It's all terrible. It's not all terrible. I mean, you know, most of it's us not. Are, I wish it were better. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of problematic things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, like big, big industry. Yeah. There's some really, you know, dark stuff going in there that's not safe or consensual. And, but that doesn't mean it's the, you know, the industry in a whole, as the whole. Yeah. And to your point, it's just not going away. And so, yes. yeah, I think we could have a long conversation about how we could just talk about it. There were these women in Boston uh, who developed this 
curriculum called porn literacy that was meant to, it was addressing sort of the sexual assault on campus, but it was also just trying to educate youth on porn. And it's a great curriculum, but, uh, you know, people have to know about it and buy it and it, it, and use it yeah, or else the curriculum just sits there and isn't used. Yeah. Well, I wish there was more curriculum around that. I think it's, it's so, so important. Yeah. It just goes back to the whole thing that sex is really still kind of, you know, turn looked down on in a lot of ways and really taboo and, and all of these things when it's literally the most natural thing we can do as humans, you don't need anything else, but our bodies to do it. So, you know, we, we've, we've complicated everything else. We have tech for everything and, you know, tools and instruments for everything else, but you can just have like just sex with nothing, just two naked bodies. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just so nasty, yeah. nasty, not nasty. That was weird. Natural can get nasty. That can make it fun. Which as makes long me- as it's used in a fun way and not a shaming way, right? Yeah. 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 So, mm-hmm. and then that brings me to the whole, also the concept of like having more fun with sex and allowing people to be more open and playful with sex and mm-hmm. realizing that like, it truly is a celebration, a exciting thing that doesn't have to, I also feel like sometimes people take it kind of seriously. Like mm-hmm. people can almost get kind of like stiff during sex and be like, okay, like, can, you know, I don't want to, I mean, it's very expressive. Right. So I think maybe people who are a little bit afraid to be totally seen. I also know a lot of women who have trouble with sex because you are super vulnerable. You're there and you're, you know, if, if you're, or even, you know, a man, if you're used to just kind of not showing someone how you truly feel and what you like, it can right. be kind of intimidating. So there's just so, it's so multi-layered and faceted. In that yeah. Way. You know, there's something to what you're saying there that I think about a lot, which is um, how we conflate the term sex and intimacy, right? So right. people will say intimacy when they mean sex. And I think this does everybody a great disservice. Uh, first of all, it's a real misunderstanding of what intimacy is, right? So... Think about intimacy is allowing yourself to be seen, allowing yourself to be known in that moment. That might happen during sex. Yeah. Um, and that would be intimate sex. Intimacy happening during sex rather than like it is intimacy, right? But there's a lot of sex that's not intimate at all. In fact, there's probably more non-intimate sex than intimate sex mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, but it but it is scary. And some people don't want to have that kind of sex, and some people do, and all those things. But when we use these euphemisms, um, again, we're just not talking about what we think we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's nice when we let go of the euphemisms and just say it straight up. Right. Just talk about right. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so one thing I do want to circle back to is when we're talking as again, especially in light of what happened last week which is that, you know, we're really women's right to make choices about pregnancy and their bodies and all of that is in jeopardy right now. And so I think it's important. I'd like to offer a little bit of insight and education to women about how to be really in sync with your cycle and your body and know when, if we're going to be engaging in this beautiful, delicious sex and getting to know our bodies, how can we also be you know, mindful and aware of when we are most likely to conceive, whether we so again, as we said, it's something we want or aren't wanting at that time. Right, right. Yeah. So Right. Well, and I think that, um, again, the book Taking Charge of Your Fertility does a great job. Um, but one of the things that uh, women can get to know is their own vaginal discharge, which changes mm-hmm. throughout the cycle, right? Yes. And so 
I mean, some people have sort of a, uh, because of all the sex negative shaming messages we get in so many cultures, they have sort of a disgust response of like, what? I don't want to, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And we could address that sex negative shaming messages, but you know, actually, yeah, getting to know your discharge. Yes. You could look at your underwear, but sometimes it means feeling it. Right. And is it dry? Is it sticky? Is it like egg yolky? If it's egg yolky, don't have penetrative intercourse without a condom that you're going to be more likely to be fertile, you know, things like that. Um, that is just an easy way. It's not foolproof if that's the only thing you're doing, but you can have all kinds of sex all month long, just not penetrative intercourse where sperm are going to go inside your vagina. Just avoid that one. You can have all kinds of other sex, right? But understanding about vaginal discharge is really important. If you really want to be precise uh, to either get pregnant or not get pregnant, uh, having a basal thermometer and taking your temperature every morning, that's a lot of work, right? Like it's supposed to be like before you even move in the morning, like you wake up, you reach for the temperature and you do this, like don't even get up. <laughs> yeah, and right? what are you and looking like, for? Is, isn't it that like when, when you're ovulating, your temperature is up a little bit? Yeah, so you'll have a spike, you'll temperature, temperature, temperature. Oh, that means don't have penetrative intercourse. Or do if you want to have a baby. Or do if you're trying to get pregnant. Right. So people will take their basal thermometer temperature every morning and be able to, it's more precise than like an ovulation, you know, uh, kit, those kinds of things. So the temperature is very, very precise. So you could do that. Um, Again, the discharge, things like that. So if you're trying to avoid, that's a good way to go. Yeah. Any learning and getting familiar with our cycles, you know, even though cycles can, can often change, but they are typically about 28 days. And for, so if you, the cycle is that you, you have your period, right. And that's when you flush everything out, all that, you know, the liner that was kind of building up to have a baby. If yeah. there's no baby, it'll flush it out. And then two weeks from your, the start of your period is when you will ovulate again. So if you keep track of the first day that you bleed and go two weeks out from there, it can come. The the hard part is that ovulation can come sooner. It can be even like as soon as like the last few days of your period. But again, if you watch your body where you'll notice a change in the discharge, which as you spoke to, you know, that, that a, cause the important thing about that, that kind of a white discharges that means like that it's kind of paving the way for that egg to come through so that's right, why that, you want that, to- that makes it the sperm more easily to get where, where they want to go right yeah. which i think is a better indicator than two weeks because what if your cycle comes early or it comes yeah. late right and those kinds of things so the discharge is a is a good thing to know about it's, it's amazing that this isn't more widely taught yeah and then right, once you if you know, if you can realize like when you've ovulated, then you have that nice period between the end of ovulation and your next period where you pretty much have a green light for all kinds of sex penetration. Otherwise, if you're not trying to get pregnant, or it means like you probably won't get pregnant if you're trying. So I just wanted to offer this because I know that I didn't really come into this understanding until more recently. I was just, yes. kind of, I was just, when I spoke about, I was, I was always like condoms all the time. I can't get pregnant all the different contraceptions. And then yeah. I realized like, wait a minute, do I need to be this concerned all the time? Because I, I, I'm not like harvesting a, you know, there's not an egg just sitting in there waiting all the time. And I think that's what women think is there's just an egg that's always going to be there waiting to like meet with a little sperm that comes in, but it really mm-hmm. only happens in a very small window. Once right. a month. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for that. And for, for clarifying and, and sharing a bit about that. 
so then to kind of go back to some of the messaging, um, Holly, when, you know, cause now we're talking about women getting more attuned with their bodies, exploring their bodies, getting more curious about sex, being more open about what they're actually feeling, knowing that it's okay to look different down there to have pain during sex. There's all these things, but where do you see some of the, the sex negative messaging coming in? Why do you think that it is that we turn away from embracing and being open about these aspects of sex? Well, I, I think, well, I think generationally, Parents often parent how they were parented, right? And so when parents are giving these sex negative messages, often they think they're doing the right thing, right? So I think it comes from a good place for a, a large majority of parents who think, well, this is, I'm, I'm saying appropriate things. I'm protecting my child and all those kinds of things that come from a good um, motivation, for a lot of parents, not all parents, but for a lot. But I think it's it's just misguided um, a lot of the time. I, re I really do think that uh, in the sense of, I can't tell you how many times I've heard uh, a student tell me that they were playing, they were either playing doctor with a, with a same age peer or relative, or they were sort of touching themselves and a parent walks in and has this uh, massive negative overreaction that's very share, uh, shaming and scary. I've heard that over and over and over, right? It's this idea that we um, need to scare our kids away from this or, or we're so threatened we don't know how to handle it. And I think that some of it comes from uh, organized religion and some of it comes from cultural beliefs. And, you know, those are sensitive areas. And I'm not trying to, um, you know, offend or upend anything there. But there's just, there's so many directions uh, it's it's almost more rare to find somebody who really was raised in a very sex positive environment. People hear sex positive and they often think it's some sort of weird like hippie commune orgy thing as if it's like promoting sex instead of just the absence of shame. Right. Um, but it has tremendous wide reaching effects on us. I mean, there is, I would say, no sex therapist out there who doesn't have to just unpack a bunch of sex negative messaging before we can even really get anywhere, right? So whether it's just a mother criticizing her own body and saying, I'm fat, boom, you could have a kid who's going to have a difficult sex life because they are going to inherit that message and now they don't want to be seen. And Or you could have somebody saying, oh, you've got to scrub your vulva, scrub it hard. When... Um, vulvar tissue should not ever be scrubbed and it shouldn't even ever have soap. Okay. <laughs> it should be water or, you know, so, you know, these messages that there's just this gross, dirty stuff. And then people wonder, why don't I feel pleasure? Why am I preoccupied? Because to, 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 to really get into sexual pleasure in a way that could be orgasmic, not only do you have to touch the clitoris, but you also have to have this mindfulness, this sort of letting go into uh, the experience. There's, there's um, at the moment of orgasm, the brain waves get into this sort of um, unthinking state. You, but if you're thinking, like, am I taking too long? What does my body look like? What is it? I have to go pick up the kids tomorrow. Like, you can't be doing that. And a lot of times, it's people are so caught up in performing. Or, or these kinds of things that they're not allowing themselves to just let go into the experience. Typically women more than men, men do this too, but women more than men. Um, sometimes because of all the sex negative messaging. Others, we can also get into just all of the emotional labor that women are often doing. But that's a whole yeah. other conversation. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, emotional labor, I, I, I was thinking, this came up 
in my head while we were talking is that in your, your work with clients, but also when you're teaching about sexuality, do you bring up the component of emotions in sex and what it means, you know, cause you said that, okay, sex isn't always intimacy. What are we to make of the feelings we start to have? Because I know with my earliest sexual experiences, the first thing I would notice was like, why do I feel so strongly about this person now? Like we, I thought, cause I was, you know, I grew up with the message of like, oh, you're supposed to just, you know, casually have sexual encounters with people. It's no big deal. Like the hookup culture. Right. But then mm-hmm. I'm like, why am I obsessing over this guy now? Like why we just kind of fooled around. And now I'm like, oh, I wonder if he wants to marry me. And I wonder if he, I mean, not all the time, but you know what I mean? Like you get, these- I, I do know what you mean. And that's not really shared. Like we're told a lot about like STDs and all this other stuff, but we're not often talking about like the way that, you know, sex is also delicate in a way that you will create this, you create a connection with somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't have to call it intimacy, but you are again, that energetic exchange, you're feeling something with them. And if, you know, and, and, and I think it is more common for women to want to kind of cultivate and hold space for feelings and connection and for men to be more easily can come and go. Right. That's, I mean, just look at our genitals. That's how that's, they kind of are, you know, how they operate. So do you talk to women about that at all about how, you know, they're especially younger women before they've really gotten into much, you know, sexual engagement, that that's a part of it too. Yeah, it can be part of it. I do talk about that. I think there's, there's so many facets to this and there's no one facet that's true for everybody. Right. So, you know, sometimes I'll hear, well, um, you always get attached to people you have sex with. Well, that's not true um, for any gender. It might be true. It might not. So it depends. It depends on the person. So I think it can be a personal thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely know what you mean about, we can think, oh, I'm just going to hook up and no big deal. And then we're obsessing, right? I, I absolutely think that happens all the time. I just don't think it always happens, right? But what I think is interesting to look at, and it would depend on how old the person was um, and how to have this conversation. But, um, and I can say more about that. But part of that, I believe, is it's not necessarily that we have sex and then now we're attached. I think sometimes it can be more comp- complex and it's about our sense of self in the sense of a lot of people get their sense of self and their sense of self-worth from other people Yeah. instead of from themselves. And so this person found me very desirable. Wow, what a rush that this person found me so desirable. Mm-hmm. Do they still? Do they still? Do they still? I want that hit of being found desirable again. I want to feel like I'm worthy instead of knowing your own worth, right? And so sometimes that's part of what's going on is you are suddenly attached because they're giving you a sense that you mean you're you're important. Yeah, yeah. So it is. It's it's a um, a value component, you know, it's, it's okay. Well, you, you see me a certain way because you wanted to engage with me and, and have, you know, have sex, have sexual explorations together, but then let's say they don't want that again, or then they might, cause you know, sometimes people will blow you off and they'll ghost yeah. you and all those things. And it doesn't feel good when you're like, no. you know, what, what, why not? Like why, what changed What happened? Cause just as your point, it's, it's more about, well, what does that mean about me? 
And especially right, for, instead of if they ghosted you, what does that say about that person? Yeah, no, but we don't, but most people won't ask that. It's like, I mean, some people will, some people will say like, you know what, that's their problem. But a lot of us take it personally, like, oh gosh, like, you know, Well, that's right. And I think, you know, that's a, a, a huge conversation to have that's adjacent to sex. It's certainly very adjacent to intimacy, right? But this idea of differentiation, right? About uh, what other people do is about them. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, it's not like, you know, so maybe what's wrong with me. My partner doesn't want to have sex with me. What's wrong. My partner lost their erection. They must not be attracted to me when that's, that's often has nothing to do with why they lost their erection. Right. You know, but these ideas that we personalize and we think there's something wrong with us, or we think it's about us, uh, all this enmeshment that's, that's part of all our love songs on the radio. We think it sounds so romantic when someone says, that you're my other half, which is like this deeply problematic statement because it just, you're, you're not half, you're, you're a whole person, right? You know, but we, we romanticize these very undifferentiated meshed ideas and we take things personally and um, that's part of the muck that sexuality and intimacy are thrown into. Yeah, yeah, that's where it is just like this, it can be very complicated because there's lots of things. Cause then when you mentioned that there's, there is a lot of things to, if you're, if you're going into really self-conscious, you can be asking yourself moment to moment in the act of it. Like, well, do they like what they see? Are they, are they turned on? Are they enjoying oh, this? Yeah. Are they, you know, and I've had partners that do that. And I've done that where it's like, can we just be, but it's absolutely up in I think that. that happens all the time. Yeah. Right. Good luck having an orgasm. Yeah. And can, can right. you speak a little bit about for both, you know, for men who are like, why isn't this woman getting wet? Why isn't she having an orgasm or for women? Why isn't he staying hard? Why isn't he getting hard? Is this about me? What do you, do you say, you know, do you have any thoughts about that or how people can sort of shift their perspective? Cause it can be, you know, can it can, people can, can become defensive. It can be can create, you know, oh, yeah. tension. And Absolutely. Uh, all of that, all of that, all the time. It's so <laughs> common. Right. And I think the bottom line is we just don't talk about it enough. If people just understood that an erection doesn't have to mean anything, it doesn't have to mean, or the lack of an erection, right? Like there's a, so many things that could mean, uh, but people think it means only one thing or, or something like that, or the lack of lubrication or lots of lubrication. Like a woman could be amazingly aroused and not be, and not be lubricated at all. And then sometimes, uh, especially a male partner will be very defensive about using lube. But I want to know that, you're really aroused as if it just, it's just really a misunderstanding about how complex we are. Um, but since we don't want to talk about sex, we can't talk about how complex it is. And so then we're reduced to these very rigid ideas that really aren't true. And then we have porn that only shows just a few different ways of being. And so yeah. people are like, well, in porn, they always do X, Y, Z. So that must be what's normal instead of porn is supposed to be total fantasy, not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's where it can be, you know, a little bit, well, very misleading and, uh, you know, not super helpful to people in that way sometimes. So yeah, I, again, I just wish that more, I wish we did talk about this more and explored this, this more. I think we've come a long way. That's for sure. You know? Um, but still not as far as you would think by 2022, you know? And also yeah, like to me, it's, you know, we still, if like, you know, public figures or, and I mean, you know, God forbid, like a political person wants to talk about sex. It's like, what? we don't talk about that. And I think that's so strange. Like, well, are they not a human being? Are they not supposed to be doing this? It's, you know, and, and yeah, it's just really still very 
strange. Well, heaven forbid that they want to do anything that's even slightly kinky. We will just absolutely rip them to shreds. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's yeah. wild. And I hope that, that that changes. And I, you know, I see a lot of positive movement in that direction with more people being vocal and open about their kinks and their fetish and their desires and their lust and their turn-ons and all of that. And that as long as it's consensual and legal, then it's wonderful, you know? Right. Yeah. Let's go yeah. for it. This is something we're supposed to enjoy. And then that brings me to can kind of be one of our final questions is can we talk a little bit about sexual peaks? So again, we've talked about a lot of different, you know, miss conceptions and different ideas. There is a lot of ideas um, that men have their sexual peaks when they're younger, maybe even like their late teens, early twenties, and that women peak. And again, this might be a word that you don't align with very much, but peak in like their thirties even. And that's when they're the most like sexually, like, you know, in their desiring and sexually engaged. So is that true? Is it, is there any truth to that? No, no. Okay. No, it's not true at all. I, when people say that men peak at you know 18 or so, what they mean, well, I don't know what any given person means, but the thing behind that is that that's you can get an erection quickly and then you can get another erection quickly. Yeah. Right. So after you know a guy has an, ejaculates, there's a time period where he can't get an erection again right? This refractory period. Yeah. Uh, well, when you're 18 or so, that refractory period is pretty, pretty short. Yeah. You could have sex, you know, eight times in a day, right? Just, just if you want, right? Yeah. And so, but that, but that's just the sort of hydraulics of your genitals, right? <laughs> um, that's what that is. Um, what a great so, term. Your genital right, hydraulics. Don't have any change at all like that. So when people say women in their 30s, I think they mean they're more comfortable, which is not always true, but those are very different. It's the ones about hydraulics and ones about comfort. So really it's looking at, there is no peak. Um, there is no time when people peak, but it gets at, are you doing what you actually want to be doing? Are you having pleasure, whether it's serious or playful or this or that, but is it consensual? Is it, is it wanted? Is it, is it enjoyable? Those kinds of things. And that's where, the research on this gets really interesting because it really bumps up against our societal ageism, yeah. right? Because there's a lot of people having the best sex of their lives in their 60s and 70s, uh, you know, and, and people then have the ageism comes up like, ew, that's gross or all these shaming. There's the sex negative shaming messages again, right? You know, but, but that in fact, um, they are connecting and experiencing and enjoy. They let go of all that for the people who are having the good sex, right? Yeah. They often talk very much about how they had to let go and unlearn all the sex negative shame that they were given. And it took decades, but now they're having way better sex than these young 30, 30 year olds. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and from my experience, I would, I would say that I definitely have way better sex in my thirties. And it, the further I get along, because just as you spoke to it, I, and when I think about it, I don't think it has anything to do with how my body has changed in terms of like, Oh, right. it's more pleasurable now. I'm more, but it's because I'm right. not, you know, I think early on, I felt like I had a lot to prove. And I was very like, I felt like there was a lot of box that had to be checked during sex where it was like, is, is this happening? Is this happening like too much? And 
the older I get, it's more about just the getting lost in the experience and being able to ask for what I want, to enjoy things, to try new things. The more that you see it as like this collaborative, really fun, you know, engagement you're having with someone, it's it's a blast and it feels amazing as opposed to just like something that you might even just be trying to get through. Cause I've been there too, where it's like, okay, right. I guess I need to just do this. Over. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in fact, when you look at sort of the people who are having this sort of magnificent sex later in life, like, and you ask them about orgasm, they're like, eh, I mean, maybe, maybe not like, yeah. that's great, but it might or might not happen. We're having magnificent sex, whether or not an orgasm happens. Where when you talk to a younger person, it's like, well, I mean, why wouldn't I have sex without an orgasm? Very goal-focused. Yes, yeah. Very goal-focused about orgasm. The objective, we got to get to it. Right, and if there's no orgasm, it's a less, somehow the experience is less than. But the magnificent sex in later range is like, I mean, yeah, that's great, but. Yeah, many great things. Totally. And that's when people can kind of get into more of what they would call tantric, tantric sex, which is kind of prolonged and, you know, more explorative experience um, when you're not just looking at that climax. Because really the climax is, it's great, but it's also kind of like the end a little bit. It's you climax. Right. Right. Tantra is trying to keep it in that just arousal stage. Yeah. And I've, you know, had that happen by accident, almost like maybe it was like, you know, we weren't going to have intercourse today. Maybe I was ovulating or something. And so we do, you know, you kind of explore with everything else and you're like, wow, you can go a long way with this stuff. And it's this prolonged and you, you, you slow down a little more and you yeah, enjoy each yeah. other's bodies and you, you go, places and you go. Yeah. And it could be amazing. It could go for hours and you're like, what, what's happening here? We're just, as long as both people want to, I can imagine one person wanting it to be over and the other person wanting this long tantric experience Keep going. Do not match up very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's what you just never know. You know, that's you just each time and each interaction is different and unique and beautiful between different people. And yeah, basically, I mean, sex is awesome and it's going to, it just gets more awesome. The more that we are open and comfortable with it and talk about it. Yeah. It definitely gets more enjoyable. The less shaming we make it, the more educated we are. Yeah. 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 So thank you, Holly for being a part of that, for being a sex educator, a sex therapist, all these wonderful things that help move us along. Little by little, we all do our part. And I love the part that you do. I appreciate you so much for so many reasons. And I'm so happy I got to have you on the show. Thanks. Yes, me too. I'm so glad to be here. Glad to further conversations about this topic. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm going to be taking notes about stuff we can talk about next time, because this, this is a topic that could never end. We can go and which is wonderful. I'm so glad that sex is so, you know, vast and there's so much to explore there. So we're going to have to carry this on another time. All right, then. All right, Holly. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.